you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to encourage you to open them up to Matthew chapter 22. As we've been following along in the lectionary this year, the assigned gospel is the book of Matthew, and so we've been in it since Advent, uh, since really November of last, December of last year. Uh, we've been journeying through this book, and now we're coming to the very end. This is the last week of Jesus's life in this gospel. So it's a little bit interesting to come to the end of, of Jesus's life and ministry on earth as we're also then turning the corner to enter into Advent again. So the cycle of life that's happening here. But Matthew chapter 22, and I'll be preaching uh, from verses 1 through 14. Jesus spoke to them again in the parable saying, in a parable saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some servants and said, some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was there not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. God, we need your help with this text today. It's not an easy one. It seems that many of these closing words of Jesus are not easy, really. And we need your help to discern what it is that you want us to, to know and to hear this morning. Because I believe that you want to speak to each one of us. So would you speak? In your son's name we pray. Amen. In the last verse of chapter 21, the, the sermon that I preached last week, we found that the religious leaders were tired of Jesus. They had had enough of him. And they wanted to arrest him. But of course, there were the crowds that they had to contend with. This is the week of Passover. So there are people from all over the ancient world that have descended upon Jerusalem. And many of these would have been fans of Jesus, would have been followers of Jesus from Galilee. And so there are many in the crowd who have heard about Jesus and they support Jesus. And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are afraid to arrest him publicly and so they're looking for a sneaky way to do this. Verse 22 wants us to know that the context has stayed the same. Jesus is still speaking to the religious leaders. They are the them of verse 1 of chapter 22. 
In other words, Jesus isn't now shifting his attention away from those who he's told these previous two parables that we've studied now for the last two weeks. He's not turning his attention away from those religious leaders to others. He's continuing to speak to the religious leaders. And in fact, it won't be until chapter 22, verse 15, that we find that the Pharisees depart, leave his presence. So we've had this three weeks of sustained conflict, sustained controversy that's happening, this interaction between Jesus and the ruling leaders in Jerusalem. And of course, it's not going well because they don't want to repent. Matthew and Luke both tell this parable in their Gospels, but Luke's Gospel uh, tells it in a far kinder way, a gentler way. (laughs) I wish I was preaching Luke's Gospel today. I feel conflicted this morning because of what's happening in our world. This, this, This parable... is asking us to see the world in a way that's uncomfortable. And we have to sit with that. We have to recognize that. We can't run from it. This is part of the reason I like to preach from the lectionary from time to time. I won't do it always. We're not going to do this next year. But part of the reason I like to preach from the lectionary is because as a preacher, I don't get to then pick and choose what I preach. I would just as soon not preach this passage this morning. But here we are. And we're going to wrestle with it together One of the interesting changes that Matthew does in in difference to Luke's uh, telling of this is he changes who is the, the centerpiece of this. So in Luke's gospel, it's a certain man that is throwing the wedding. But in this gospel, in Matthew's version of this story, it's not just a certain man, it's a king. And I think this is important for us for a couple of reasons, and we're going to highlight these as we go along, but let's start with this. It was common in Jewish parables, lots of parables, by the way. Jesus isn't the only Jewish rabbi that was telling parables. So we can go back and look at other rabbis that were teaching parables. And often when parables were taught in Judaism, then if there was a king in the, in the parable, then the king was to represent God, and that makes sense. It's not always the case, but it is often so. So we start with this idea that maybe this is about God as king. The kingdom of heaven is like a king, Jesus says, who is preparing a wedding banquet for his son. The basic details of this opening would give every indication to a first century Jew that they know exactly what this is about. They know the context of this. The king would represent God. The son would represent the chosen people, the Jewish people. The wedding banquet is a common theme in the Old Testament and would, rep- and would represent the covenant uh, or the salvation or the ultimate vindication of God's holy people. So far, so good. This parable seems like what they would expect to hear from a rabbi. No surprises, Jesus goes on. The servants are sent out to say, it's time to come to the event, to the feast. And this is an interesting detail because it reflects really what would have happened in the ancient world. It was customary to send out the invitation to the feast. That would be the first invitation. I am going to have a feast. I'm inviting you to this. Then there would be a second invitation that would come when the feast was ready. And so it is now ready for you to come. Come to this feast. And that's what verse 3 is revealing to us, this context, the two invitations It's important to understand the text is coming to us 
from a different culture than our own. I think you've probably picked up on that, right? But this is a shame and honor culture. Ours isn't really, the American culture isn't really a shame and honor-based culture. And so we need to understand that in this ancient culture that Jesus is telling this story in, that there are a lot of written and unwritten rules about hospitality. To refuse to attend to an, in, an invitation, attend an invitation would be a significant cause of shame and dishonor in Jesus' world. To refuse a king would be unthinkable. A person of higher status in the ancient world could refuse an invitation to a meal, to a party, at somebody that was lower status. So somebody of the higher echelon could say no to those that are below them, but the reverse was not the case. And certainly, you were not to say no to the king. In this case, Matthew wants us to see that everyone is invited to this party. That's what's conveyed in this parable, that everyone is invited to come. And therefore, everyone is expected to come because the invitation's not coming on behalf of a certain man, but on behalf of a king. And everybody in the social standing of the day, everyone would be below the king. And so everybody should attend this feast, this party, this wedding. To not do this would bring dishonor to the king. It would be shameful. It's here that the parable flips. Because all of the original hearers would have been comfortable with the characters of this parable and what has happened up to, up to this point. They would have been comfortable with this. This would have made sense to them. All until we read that those that were invited refused to come. That would not have made sense. That would have been startling and unsettling to Jesus' hearers. But interestingly, the king of Jesus' parable responds graciously. Despite the dishonor, despite the shame that might be cast upon his own family, by this refusal, the king offers a second chance. He sends out another group of, of servants to convey to the group that just said, no, we're not coming. Maybe his graciousness is grounded in a belief that there's been a miscommunication here. Surely this is why they have refused the king, because they just didn't understand that it's now time. I'm ready. Did you notice that verse 4 makes it abundantly clear, though? The party is now ready. The meat is prepared. This is going to be a luxurious meal, by the way, because the oxen is killed and all the fatted calves or cattle are killed as well. By the, this would not have been an ordinary meal for an ordinary person in the ancient world. You were lucky to have meal every, or meat every once in a while. But here, oh, we have, we have meat galore. This is going to be a feast, friends. You want to come. Don't miss it. But verse 5 makes it clear to us that this is a planned revolt. There's a united front happening here, a united effort to refuse this invitation. And so these people, they seize and mistreat the messengers. The text tells us that they even kill some of the messengers. The king has invited everyone to a party and they kill the messengers. 
And I think we should hear, pause here for a moment to, to echo back to last week's uh, sermon on the parable of the wicked tenants. Because in that parable, we heard the same uh, verbs, didn't we? Seize and kill. The messengers were sent out, and those, those messengers were seized. They were killed. And here we have Jesus speaking to the same group of people, the religious leaders. And by the way, verse 45 of chapter 21, after that first story of the wicked tenants, where he talks about them being seized and killed, Jesus, or those, those religious leaders walk away knowing that the parable was about them. And so Jesus is doubling down here. He's using the exact same verbs, seize and kill, to the exact same crowd. This parable, make no mistake, is about the religious leaders. It's directed at them. Verse 7 goes in a direction that we haven't seen in Jesus' parables before, though. The king is dishonored because the unthinkable has happened. They have refused my invitation. And he's enraged. He sends his army out to destroy the murderers, even destroy the city, the text says. I don't know about you. Maybe, maybe two weeks ago, I could have read that and maybe not been as troubled by it. But I'm troubled by it, particularly what's going on in the Middle East right now. I hear, read this violent language, this imagery, and I'm wondering, what are we to do with this verse? Verse 7, maybe the king in this parable isn't actually meant to be God after all. But I find that interpretation hard to accept. Not only is this parable about a king, but it also speaks of a son. And it's pretty hard for us Christians to read this parable today and not hear these two things and think that, well, that son is just an add-on. That's, that's ancillary to this. It's no big deal. No, of course, we read that and we hear Jesus. Jesus is the son of God. So somehow this parable seems to be about the Godhead. So what does that mean for us? I would like to remind us that parables are parables for a reason. And they're meant to be, uh, they're not meant to be interpreted too literally. We get ourselves in a lot of danger taking parables and trying to interpret them literally. They're figurative speech, they're storytelling that is meant to teach us something. So we have to ask ourselves what is this trying to teach us about our God? And we need to be careful that we just don't easily translate this parable into current day situations. I think there's a number of ways we could go, particularly thinking about the violence of verse 7 and, and the action on the part of this king. But for the sake of time, let me focus on just one this morning. I'm wondering if this language is meant to bring to mind the final judge, judgment. Because at the very least, what we are seeing in this parable is that there are consequences to refusal. Ultimately, the refusal is what leads to one's destruction. The king is not being capricious here. This is no scary God character in this parable that might strike us at any moment for any reason and we all should cower in fear of this God. That's not what this is about. 
One day we each will stand before our God and give account. We know that. And it seems clear what the outcome will be for those who refuse the grace of God based on this parable. Destruction. But I want to remind us that that's not all that this parable is saying to us, is it? Because let's not forget this this king that sends out his armies to destroy those that destroyed his messengers is the same king that sent out the invitation to all to come. It's the same king that made the preparations for the meal. It's the same king that set the table of the feast for all to participate in. And in the face of the refusal to come, the king sends a third invitation. This is grace upon grace. But friends, we need to hear Jesus' caution here. Grace without consequence is cheap grace. Grace without consequence is cheap grace. Grace that is permissive and allows anything to go is cheap grace. And God's grace is not cheap, is it? It is, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer has called it, costly grace. It is grace that costs Christ his life. It is grace that costs God dearly. It's grace that demands a response from us, so it too costs us dearly. Cheap grace demands nothing in return, but costly grace demands discipleship as its return. And this is the true failure of the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day. They would not submit to the call to follow Jesus Christ, the way of discipleship. And they are going to suffer the consequence of that refusal, but let's not be so focused on the language of violence and destruction in this text, and let's ground it in the grace that is prevailing prevailing all throughout this text. And it's at this point that Matthew adds a second part to the parable that is not in Luke's version at all. After the army is mustered and sent out and goes into battle, the meal is still ready, which is a good sign to us that this is, in fact, a parable that is meant to teach us something. This is not recording history as an, as an event. An army has been raised, an army has to go out, an army has to do its destructive force, and then everybody needs to come back to eat this meal. Do you imagine this meal is stale by this point, right? This isn't a good meal anymore. But that's not the point of this. Jesus is telling this parable to teach us something. So at this point, Jesus' parable shifts. There's still a meal that needs to be eaten. And so we move from those who refuse to attend the feast to those who now accept. So now we find all sorts of people are invited to the feast and they show up. The kingdom of God is inclusive in this parable. It's not exclusive. And Jesus picks this theme up in previous parables. We don't have to actually go back too far to see this. Chapter 21, verse 32, we find that Jesus lifts up the tax collector and the prostitutes as part of those that are in his kingdom over and against the religious leaders. In chapter 21, verse 43, we find out that it's not the religious leaders uh, who are producing the fruit of righteousness, but the kingdom of God is going to be given to the people. 
a generic group of people that produce the fruit of righteousness. Jesus is extending the boundary markers here. And we've seen this all throughout this gospel as he's met with the Samaritan, as he's met with the Canaanite, as he has met with the Roman centurion, as he extends the boundaries of inviting those on the outside, on the fringes to come in. The circle of invitation to come and follow keeps getting wider in Matthew's gospel. But then the parable focuses on one man. A man who comes not dressed in his wedding clothes. And this one is identified as bringing offense to the king and is thrown out. In the ancient world, to show up at a feast in the wrong attire, your work clothes, for instance, would be shameful. It would be dishonoring to your host to do that. If they extended an invitation to you, you should at least have the decency to show up in the right clothes. So the king in this parable isn't acting the role of a tyrant. Randomly getting angry here and there for unknown reasons or for petty reasons. We might think, okay, he doesn't have the right clothes. What does that matter? But it matters. The consequence suggests that it matters. The problem in this parable is not the king. It's the one man that shows up in the wrong clothes. And it's here that we have to be, probably break away from our our normal readings of Scripture, and we really do need to think about this idea of clothing in a more symbolic way. The wedding tire is probably meant to symbolize baptism. It's meant to pick up on the themes that Jesus has been talking about in the previous two parables. The obedience that was in the parable of the two sons. The fruit of righteousness that was in the parable of the wicked tenants. This is what it means to be clothed in righteousness. It's to be people of obedience. It's to be people that show up, not in their rags of disobedience or wearing the fruit of injustice, idolatry, or self-centeredness. Because those people don't have a place at the feast. But if we show up in the right attire, in the wedding attire, our baptismal outfit, repentance, holiness, righteousness. Well, there's a seat at the table for you. Matthew wants us to see that we can't simply see Jesus' words as a judgment against the religious leaders. He is judging the religious leaders. That's true. But that's not all that's happening here. We don't get a free pass in this. You and I can't just show up whenever we want and however we want and think all is well in God's kingdom. And I'm not speaking about clothes. (laughs) But with the actions of our lives and how we live our lives. God's grace isn't permissive. In other words, letting anything and everything go. God's grace is transformative. That would have been a good spot for an amen. (laughs) God's grace isn't permissive. Giving us license to do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want. But God's grace is transformative. It changes us. Yes, God's grace meets us in our brokenness. We know that to be true. We don't clean ourselves up to show up. That's not the gospel message. 
The gospel is that God's grace meets us where we are. We were the ones on the outside, like this text. We were the ones that were out on the streets, and we are pulled in, invited in, come to the feast. God's grace meets us in our brokenness. Otherwise, there's no hope for us. But when it does meet us, it changes us. Amen? And I want you to understand me when I say that. Sometimes that's an instantaneous change. Some of us have that experience and can testify to that. But others of us know a little bit of the story of the Israelites in the wilderness wandering. Sometimes it takes God 40 years to make us holy people. (laughs) Sometimes it takes God a while to transform us. But what we should recognize is each step of the way that God is bit by bit or instantaneously, he is offering us grace. And that grace is transformative. That grace is changing us. To live as if grace does nothing, changes nothing, is to be in danger of becoming an outcast in God's kingdom. It's as if we've shown up to the wedding in the wrong attire. Well, this is not an easy sermon. It's not an easy text. And I haven't even got to the part of the text that's the hardest part, the very end, where the one is cast outside into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I have to think, with my own experience in the church, that it's that part of the text that often is is emphasized by preachers. That it's this part of the sermon where I should offer you scare tactics to say to you, you better repent, you better turn, you better change, otherwise hell is in our future where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. But I don't think this parable really is meant to scare us into the kingdom of God. I don't think that's why Jesus tells this story. Because after all, this this parable is grounded in a party. Do you remember that? I know we've said some hard things in this sermon, but do you remember the start of it? It's a party. And it's not just a party. It's a wedding. So to help you kind of get into what I think is going on in this passage, I offer you this picture. Exactly! (laughs) You thought I was going to turn the end of this to hell, and I offer you this. Now hang with me. I'm not trying to cheapen the text. I I want you to hang with me. I want to show you this for two reasons. Our wedding pictures are not... um, any better than anybody else's. I could have chosen anybody's, but this was what I chose last night at 11.30 at night. (laughs) So uh, I wanted to show you in part because I look like I'm 12 in these pictures. (laughs) I look really young. And it's nice since I just turned 47. It's nice to remember, oh yeah, I looked like a kid at one point. That's nice. But I wanted to show this because of your reaction. Jesus tells us a parable that's grounded in this event. A wedding. 
And I don't know about you, but when I think about a wedding, I don't think, oh, this is foreboding. Oh, this is scary. I think, oh, a smile comes to my face. I think of joy and happiness. I think of love. I know marriages can go sideways and all of that, but our initial response to that was exactly what I wanted you to have. Because Jesus is telling us a a story that's not meant to scare us into the kingdom, but it is to remind us that we've been invited to a feast. You have been invited to a feast with the Lamb of God. I'm going to have you go to the next slide. So you're invited. This text is telling us an invitation has come to you, to me, and we should take it seriously. Don't get me wrong. The the dark notes in this passage and the way that it ends suggest to us that this is weighty, that this is serious. Eternal life is hanging in the balance after all, and that's no light thing. But friends, we're not scaring people into the kingdom of God. We're extending an invitation to a feast. Come, receive the grace of God. It's good. All you have to do is receive it. In fact, friends, it's not just the text that's saying this, and it's not just these words that I've put up here. I want us to understand, even though we're not experiencing the feast of the Lamb this morning, that's in our future at some point when we meet Jesus face to face, and I look forward to that moment. But until that moment, guess what we have? We have bits, a foretaste of it. We're coming to a table at the close of our service. So we're going to enact this text because guess what, friends? An invitation is given. Come. Come to the table. A meal has prepared, and yes, it's, it's a simple meal. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> a wafer and a little cup of juice. But the symbolism is there. A meal has been provided. And who's invited? Just those who have their lives in order? Or is it those we're going to come in the right attire. Not this, but with the spirit of humility, recognizing that they need to repent, that they need the grace of God. If that's you this morning, then friend, receive the invitation to come to the table. Our band is going to come forward, and as they do, my, I'm going to ask my helpers to get ready. And I'm wondering if you would pray with me as we prepare to come to this meal which is a foreshadowing, a foretaste of this future feast that awaits us. God, in these closing moments of our worship, we've wrestled with sacred scripture and Jesus' words. And maybe they've poked and prodded us a bit and left us questioning and wondering at certain points, but ultimately, the center of this parable is you the gracious God that extends your invitation to come and receive. And so God, as we, not only hearing these words, but get to enact them in our very bodies, as we come forward this morning, would you receive us as we are? Would you sanctify us through and through by your grace that we receive? For it is by you that we are made whole. We offer ourselves to you in these closing moments. We offer our past. We offer our futures. 
We want to be your people. And so would you give us grace today to be true to who you're calling us to be? We ask in Christ's name. Amen.